Hi, everyone. It's Coco here, host of Conversations with Coco and Friends. We are still on a show break. Don't kill us, but there's a lot of great content that you might have missed. So today, I'm recommending the episode with our friend 1985. He is an incredible musician and an amazing producer who has produced some of your favorite songs. Hello, Hotline Bling. I know you're going to want to listen to it. It's very informative. He has lots of opinions. Plus, he talks about how he made it. Check it out. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, this is Coco, and you're listening to Conversations with Coco and Friends. Paul Jeffries, also known as 1985 or 85, is a musician, producer, and friend from our fine Toronto streets who just happens to be known globally for a few songs you might have heard, like uh, Hotline Bling or Just Hold On, We're Going Home, or maybe One Dance, and every song from his band, Division. Though he is one of the most sought-after producers, 85 is also a pretty savvy business dude whose story is one of inspiration and grit. Settle in to listen to this conversation you don't want to miss with a highly private Canadian treasure who will remind you that there's never only one way to do something. Let's get this show on the road. So through my research and actually watching you on that Fender Instagram Live, you talked about Jimi Hendrix and Zeppelin being your inspo as a kid and that you are a self-taught guitarist and subsequently a self-taught instrumentalist of other things. What drew you to the guitar and how did you go about learning to play those other instruments? I think I wanted to be a rock star as a kid. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I just wanted to be the guy on stage playing solos and stuff and... I don't think I knew what I was supposed to do. I just figured out how to tune a guitar and then just started with one string at a time. And then from there, I learned a couple chords. And I would I would just sit in my room for hours and just like keep pulling back a certain song until I could play it. I mean, that's hype. I feel like you can hear it. This is just a total sidebar, but the Again song with Chantel May, like the 80s, like, <laughs> dum, 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 and then the guitar, and then you're like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's so true. And that, that song Exploder, Exploder episode with um, um, James Vincent McMurrow. Mm. I love I love him. But just knowing how they broke apart the song and how your guitar was supposed to be like the secret in the song. <laughs> like you just kind of put it in there. And then that was like kind of what differentiated the song. That's what everybody talks about. It's like these 
crazy guitar riffs. And we're like, that's Paul, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because you're known for your 808s and you're known for these amazing drum beats. But the guitar thing is something so special. I think that's the coolest part about being a producer. You can you can have so many different aspects to what people know you for. Right. Like so many different crowds know me for different things. Right. I just happened to be in, what city was I in? I was in Amsterdam with a friend just randomly walking and we walked into a store and the James Vincent McMorrow album was playing. And I was like, oh, I did this. And they're like, what? Me? <laughs> yeah. I was like, yeah, I did this album. And they're like, how? You know, like they were just so like stunned. I was like, yeah, that's like a friend of mine. Right. We did the album in Toronto and they're just like, but I, I, I thought you're like, the R&B, like, hip-hop guys. Like, no, I just do music, yeah. <laughs> whatever it is. I think that, that that is why you're so talented and, and you do so much and are, are so surprising to people because you do have this breadth of knowledge of, of music. It's more than just, you know, you're very fixated on this one style. You really come to it with all these different genres in your back pocket. That personally makes me love what you do. Thank you. <laughs> but you, were, you kind of touched on that when you're a producer. You, um, you do so many things. But how did you go from, you know, really loving music and being a musician to deciding, hey, I'm, this is my lane. I'm going to be a producer. Uh, that's a great question. I, I fell into it. When I first started making music, I don't even think I really knew what a producer was. Right. I, I was in bands. I was in a punk band, a bunch of rock bands. I was writing all the different parts for everybody. I was writing the lyrics. I was just kind of like doing everything. And then near the end of high school, my high school girlfriend's older brother was a DJ. And I always wanted to DJ too. So one day I was like, you know what? Let me just build up the courage and ask, like, maybe he'll teach me how to DJ. So I went to his little studio room and I was like, hey, do you mind like teaching me how to DJ? And he's like, no, I'm producing. And I was like, What's that? <laughs> <laughs> I'll learn that too. And he's like, well, I've heard that you can like play guitar and stuff. Do you want to try playing some guitar on this record for me? I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. So I played some guitar and then he's like, well, do you know bass? I was like, yeah, it's pretty easy. I, I, I think I can get it. So I did that. And then he's like, what about drums? I was like, I can play drums, but I've never used a drum machine before. Like, I, like, I don't know how to do all this stuff. And he's like, okay, well then try something. And I did that, and he's like, there, that's producing. I was like, oh, wow. okay, I, I guess I can produce. You know, yeah. I, I literally had no clue what was going on. You're basically a musical savant, and we like it. <laughs> and you're so casual, too. Like, you're I like, can, oh, yeah, I can do that. And that, and that, and that. Well, I love the, it. The way, he pro like, the way he approached it wasn't that he was teaching me. He's just like, you can do this already, right? Yeah. So go, try this thing, try that thing. And then when it was done, then he's like, there. You know, like... He showed you the roadmap. Yeah. How to put it all together. And then with that being said, like, what are the back end differences between being a record producer and being in a band? Like, obviously, we know at the forefront, a band consists of more than one person and people play different instruments and have different skills. But then as a record producer, like, what are those differences that the public doesn't necessarily see? I think the biggest difference between being the producer and being in a band because you can have a producer for a band as well so i think the biggest difference is the producer is kind of like the director of the movie so the producer will sort of 
steer something in a, in a certain direction. Like the band can write the whole song and play all the music, yeah. but the producer might be the one to be like, I really love the bass, but I'm going to take it out at this part. Or I'm going to turn up the drums here and we're not going to focus on, you know, the lyrics at this part or whatever it is. I think the producer has the job of seeing the end goal where the musicians or the artist have the freedom to just put it all into the world and let the producer sort through what should or shouldn't stay. Does that create conflict between you and Daniel? Knowing that you are in a band division, but you're also the producer? Or do you ever get stuff produced outside? Like, I, you are the producer for division. Do you ever get any assistance in producing? Or yeah, I definitely you- work with a bunch of different producers. Every, yeah, every single division song that's come out, I've touched in some way. I don't mm-hmm. think there's, yeah, I don't think there's even a, a single one that I haven't, but that's not based on me wanting to do everything. That's just kind of how it worked. And as far as conflict, we definitely go back and forth and, and butt heads on a lot of stuff. But I think that's where we've always been somewhat trusting so that even if I'm like, yo, I, I don't think that's the right idea and he's really pushing for it. I'm just like, all right. <laughs> you know, like, but that, that's, that's part of it. You right. know? Yeah. Partnership. Mm-hmm. The producer is like, the nuance that's I'm thinking about it in terms of events and like the details that go into it. So I like that. So I've tweeted about this. Someone had said this funny thing on Twitter about like, what's Toronto done for the music scene? I was like, Toronto's been stepping on throats for a decade. Um, so having been born and raised in Toronto, um, along with so many other like incredible artists who have been stepping on throats, I guess, do you feel like there's something in the Toronto air um, obviously we've got Drake, we've got The Weeknd, we've got Boy Wanda, and everyone, yourself included, grew up within 20 kilometers of each other. <laughs> so is it like the Toronto water, the Toronto air? What do you think? I think it's Toronto's culture. Toronto is the most, probably the most diverse place. New York is pretty close, but something about Toronto is different because in Toronto you grow up um, with... Italian friends, Filipino friends, Jamaican friends, Mexican friends, but the cultures are so close that you can go to a Guyanese restaurant and the chef is a Chinese guy. You know, that's not something that you get other places because everything is separated. So even if you're in New York and one side of the street is Dominican and the other side of the street is Jewish, they don't cross. Here, they're all just one thing. And I think our music has been that. So even if you grew up listening to like Biggie or Kanye, you still knew all the Follow Boy songs that your other friends were listening so to. True. So true. That Blink One Eighty Two phase. Yeah, you still you still knew all of those records just as well. Even if you yourself weren't like playing them, you knew them. So now when you go to be a recording artist I don't even know if you have to think about adding these different layers they're just in you you know and that's why you look at all of Toronto's huge artists they do like four or five different genres in their songs look at The Weeknd look at Drake look at Party Next Door like all of these guys have so many different sounds to them if you compare them to even their counterparts in the states right I think that also lends itself to how they could um, 
transcend to pop star from hip hop star. Yeah. Right? They, for because sure. they're so all encompassing. The music is genre bending and almost like the way Madonna did it in the 80s. Drake has been able to kind of move in that way because he's so. He's so good, at, and I'm not not culture vulture, but so good at, at taking a piece of a culture and bringing it to the forefront so that people feel included. Like he'll speak speaking Arabic and then Spanish, and, then yeah. just, you know, and it works. And you see people emulate that from Beyonce to everybody. Um, I was reading your most recent interview in Font Magazine where you look very, very handsome and dapper. Mm-hmm. We like it. Um, and you and Daniel are saying that you get your inspo from living life. So rather than being in the studio for 24 hours, you really like to get live life and then come in and record. How's that going for you right now <laughs> during COVID? How do you stay creative and stay inspired? I mean, you, re- you did some amazing thing. You re- released an album and you, you were one of the only um, recording artists to be able to do a concert during COVID. How have you been able to do that and stay creative during this time? I'm a workaholic, so mm-hmm. I don't really know how to slow down, which is great and terrible at the same time. So the last few months have been interesting because I'm constantly forcing myself to do more, even though this is probably the time where you don't need to do as much because there's not as much happening. But I've started so many different projects just trying to keep it going. And then also, because I do so many projects, it stops me from getting bored. So I will will kind of switch between things and I jump a lot, where I think other people are probably a little bit more like focused on one thing at a time. I'll do a few songs on one project, switch to another project, do half of a song, switch to something else. I'll start mixing a different song, I'll start listening to some music for inspiration. Like I'm doing so many random things that there's never really a method to the madness, but that is the method, I guess, for me. What's been your favorite project over COVID? That I'm working on? Yeah. I have an artist named Raheem that will be coming out in a couple weeks. Ooh. An EP coming? Yeah. Cool. Um, And then, like Coco just said, you don't spend a lot of time in the studio. So when you're collaborating with other artists... Is that a problem? No, I wouldn't say it's a problem, especially the way that you can send stuff, like even over text. Yeah. Like I can I can text somebody a song now and they can oh. work on it and they can text it back to me. So crazy. I feel like studios are almost becoming less as the prominent space. Like I know people in the music industry who have said like, oh, we literally recorded this in someone's kitchen. Like we had the sound and we wanted to make it. Yeah, for sure. I think... I think because technology has gotten so much better and it it doesn't cost as much to get just as good quality, there's not as much of a need for a studio like the one we're in because you can do something that sounds the same in a random bedroom. Last year, I recorded three different albums in an Airbnb in Miami. Oh, my God. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, So as a creative... I think sometimes you have to let go of like certain creative elements of things that you make and that you build. And I assume you have to do that in music and when you have to accommodate an artist. Is that tough for you? Do you ever have anybody who's like, no, we need to like slash and burn this part or, you know, where you kind of get into that? 
Yeah, that's that's kind of part of the game now. I I took it more personally before because you feel like, oh, I've put everything into this and I can't believe they want something different. But now, especially when you work with an artist like Drake, I would say Drake is the pickiest artist in the game, but it shows, you know, mm-hmm. he, I would say he has pretty great taste. And a lot of my job as the producer is to make him sound good. It's not to make me sound good, you know? So it's not a, it's not really about how I can show off this little piece that I wanted to make or whatever. Like Drake will be the first person. I'll make a three minute beat. He'll find eight seconds and be like, right there. I want that. And I'll be like, okay. <laughs> you know, like, so, and a, a great example of that is One Dance. I had spent hours making the original beat. He came in the room. He's like, there's something to this but the drums and everything are all wrong. That's what I'd spent all the time doing. But I know how he works because we've worked so long that I knew that if I didn't show him something almost immediately, he would go on to the next idea and we'd probably never come back to it. So after spending hours trying to put it together and make sure it fit properly, he kind of crushed that and was like, yeah, it's cool, but it needs more. So I was like, all right, don't worry. I'll send you something like, I'll send you something now. You know, it was just like, let me figure it out. And then I just switched the drums and those are what's on it right now. And I sent it back to him. He's like, oh, perfect. You got it. I don't know how I got it, but I just knew that, you know, if he's saying it's not right, it's not right. I just had to switch it. So you've like essentially just let go of the ego that comes with the, you know, building something that's yours and not holding it so tight. Like I made this, it's mine. You it seems like you've really just let go of the ego. Yeah, you have to. And I think in certain situations, you also have to understand why these artists are the way they are. So you might have amazing records and done some incredible things, but this artist has a certain style and that's what their fans love. So if you try to change that, they might just be like, it works, but that doesn't work for me. So, How do you manage that with producing for so many different artists? So understanding their particular niche and really producing just for them. Like to go from like a PopCon to no, a Nicki Minaj. Like very different to James. Like they're very all different kind of genres. And I know you love all those spaces, but you have to like meditate in between. <laughs> or But you say you like to do a lot of things. So it just keep, it keeps you creative and working within that space, but is there a process to going from one to the other? A phrase I keep hearing over this quarantine is read the room. And I think that's very important with any anything where you have artists involved because they're so mood-based or vibe-based. So even though they might be known for upbeat songs, they might walk in and be very down and be like, yo, I want to make the slowest song I've ever made. You can push to make an upbeat song, but if they weren't in that vibe that day, that song might just never see the light of day. I've had sessions like that. I've had sessions where the artist comes in, the artist is like, look, the label wants me to make an upbeat radio single, and I don't want to do that. I know I need to do that. I just don't want to do that. So when they say that, what do I do? (laughs) You know, like, should I do the upbeat song that the label was hoping for? Or do I just go with what the artist wants? You kind of got to go with what the artist wants because even if you force them to do the other thing, if they weren't feeling it, 
they're not going to want to use the song regardless. And I think part of my job is almost to be like the therapist. You know, part of my job is to have the conversation and understand where they're at and have them feel like, oh, he gets me and now I can convey my message through this song. And that's something I had to learn over time because it is more, for me, it is more than just playing beats. There are some producers that have great results. They can have, they can go into the studio, have 30 beats and just be like, go through the beats, pick five, let me know what you need. That doesn't work for me, you know? And sometimes I, I wish it did, you know? Like sometimes I, I wish I did have the freedom of being able to just like bang out a bunch with any artist and it, it does well, but I always get my best stuff when I can have real conversations and real moments and really find out what they need for their project or not to keep using Drake as the example. I remember before we had done one dance, we had a conversation about him being in Dubai. He was in Dubai a few years ago, and he said, I'm one of the biggest artists in the world, but it's very weird to me that when I go to certain countries, they can't necessarily dance to my music, you know, because it doesn't fit with what they're known for, like, moving to. I was kind of blown away because I didn't even know artists thought like that. You know, they kind of just do what they do. But um, when he said that, I was like, okay, cool. Like, give me some time, you know, let me try to figure out what that means. And that's why when, when I was working on One Dance, I was thinking of what's a way that you can cross many genres at the same time. You know, there's a sample from a UK funky house artist with Afrobeatish drums, and then some people would say it has reggae influence. So already you've hit three huge international cultures, and then you have a Canadian slash American artist on it. So you've kind of just like jumped continents so quickly. But that doesn't happen if we didn't have that conversation. Right. You know, if, if he wasn't able to say, this is what I'm feeling like, or this is what I need, I'm just making beats, you know? It's one of those reasons why artists feel so comfortable working with you. I think so, hopefully. It's true. Yeah, facts. Um, we feel like the music industry can be so tough and you're always, there, there's this perception that you're always chasing kind of that dragon, that next hit, that, that big life-changing hit, and you've had so many of them. But you also, just from knowing you personally, have a lot of other interests and outside of music. And you are a businessman. So you do other things than just produce. What are some of the other things that you're involved in? And why, does, why is it important to you to not just have one income stream? Like I said before, my brain's all over the place. <laughs> so anytime I'm just focused on the one thing, I always, I always feel like, okay, I need to do something else to you know, keep the creative juices flowing. From a creative standpoint, I, I always need to pull and draw from a few different places. From a business standpoint, I've always had a fear of being broke again. <laughs> you know, I've always felt like if I've had nothing and then I have something, I should make sure I never go back to having nothing. So my first I guess, yeah, I guess my first big song I had, 
I was still living with my parents, still living in their basement. And before really buying anything, I invested in student property, uh, a triplex. And most people would probably say that's crazy because instead of living in your parents' house, you should get a house for yourself. But I was like, no, I'd rather do this because if anything, who knows, something happens to my hands and I can't produce again, or who knows, if something terrible happens, at least I then have that property to fall back on. And then from there, I can maybe start again. I don't know. And I've seen a lot of producers especially be up really high and then you go down really low, but they never come up high again. And those ups and downs, especially in this business, are what they don't teach you about. And it's funny, just yesterday I was saying to somebody, I really wish they taught financial management and planning in high school. Agreed. RT. Or even, Yeah. Even just middle school. Just so you have more of an idea of what you should be aiming for. And right now you see all these people talking about everything from multiple sources of income to starting your own business. But it it's not like as you guys know, it's not as easy as just doing that because there's no background in that. Even if you have a bunch of money, if you don't know what to do with your taxes or even how to save your taxes, you will not have a bunch of money later. And that's kind of how it goes for so many people until they kind of get it wrong too many times Mm -hmm. and then they're just stuck with whatever it is. And that's even if they've been successful. And I think... In my position, I was able to see my parents who had done pretty well for themselves, but didn't necessarily have the right financial guidance. And they've had they've had their own business since I was six or seven. So I saw them be entrepreneurs, but I also saw that they didn't necessarily have anything to fall back on. And both of them being the same business, it was literally like if one of them is sick, there's no money coming in because they were so heavily tied to each other and so heavily tied to that one source of income. For me, with with the way you get paid in production, it can be like once for the year, it can be four times for the year, but there's no guarantee. So knowing what that was and knowing that even after I got my first hit, I didn't get paid for at least a year. That's hard because everybody's looking at you like, dude, your song's all over the radio. What do you mean you're broke? You know, and it's hard to explain to people the whole process of how you even get paid in music. So when I did have money, I was just like, you know what? I'm just never going to do what I've been doing because I was doing that by default. I wasn't doing that by choice. So now that I have the choice, I'm going to look into real estate. I'm going to look into investing. I'm going to look into insurance. I'm going to look into simple things like most people don't realize like if you pay for your car insurance yearly, you'll save more than if you pay for it monthly. You know, the average person can't afford to do that. So you're stuck doing these things that don't really save. But as soon as I had the opportunity, I was like, okay, well, why don't I do the things I never could do? And a lot of people would be like, okay, take a vacation, buy a car, buy a clothes. I was like, no, Those things will be there. You know, I can do that in four years. I can do that in 10 years. 
But if I don't get through these few years, I can't do that in general, you know? So there's a lot of, there's a lot of ways where I probably wasn't the most like fun with my money and didn't necessarily take full advantage and celebrate all my wins. But I think now looking back on it, I'm, I'm in a place where I can do so many things that I couldn't have done if I had been a little more frivolous. And there's times when I'm like, ah, I probably should have balled out a little. <laughs> <laughs> well, every rich person that I know and every rich person that I've spoken to have said the exact same thing, that they, they put themselves through a little bit more of a difficult time in the beginning in order to enjoy it later on. And I think it takes discipline and it takes... Um, well, mostly it takes discipline, but in the end of the day, you get to enjoy it for longer. If you, you know, you can celebrate the wins, they just don't have to be spraying champagne on people. <laughs> Every single day. <laughs> and was all of that financial literacy you self-taught? Or did you do a course? Or were there any resources that helped you? Um, yeah, I, I guess you could say it was self-taught. I started in university doing business and society, dropped out didn't really follow up, but I've always been pretty aware of what is working for people and what isn't working for people. And then seeing, just seeing the people around me and seeing what does happen when they do have money and then wondering, well, I've seen money go through your hands. What Where'd now? It? Yeah, <laughs> you know, like, go? I know you've had some money at some point, but now you're kind of back to the same position. And Obviously, everything goes in cycles. I just don't want to be in that like check to check cycle ever again. You know, I've I've done enough years of just hoping to make it to payday, whatever payday is. And a lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I think a lot of it was seeing my parents struggle even as we were doing fairly well you know like we were a pretty successful middle-class family and to a lot of people they would have looked at us and been like you guys are doing great you have your own business when I realized they had no vacation time I went on one trip with them you know so we didn't travel we didn't necessarily have any um, benefits or anything like that Everything was all paid out of pocket. I think the harshest reality is after all of that, there's no retirement plan because they were just doing what they could to get by. And at times it was great. But because there was no plan set up, they're sort of back at square one as soon as you stop. Because literally the second you stop when you're working for yourself nonstop, it's as though you didn't do anything. You know, you could do that for 40 years, years yeah. 
And then you stop for even six months. And then it's like, oh, wait, we didn't, we didn't make any other source for this money to be channeled through. It's just this one thing. It didn't, it didn't branch off into other things. So for me, that was, that was like the constant reminder of, you know, don't do that. For sure. And, Learning by example. Yeah. And I would say they did, they did amazing for like our family because we did have freedoms that other people didn't have. And we did, like, I was able to do more sports and have, like, experiences other people didn't have. But then even just the simple securities, when the normal nine to five of knowing that you have certain paid time off, they didn't have that, you know. And that was, I guess, like, my biggest teaching. And it, it wasn't directly taught by them because... I've, I feel like I can probably teach them more than they can teach me yeah. because I've had the chance to see it from outside. You know, they were in it. So true. And I mean, you've built up your reputation. You are a legend in the music industry, so successful, and you managed to stay so damn humble, even just feeling your energy. So I guess, how do you do that? The name Paul actually means to be humble. Mm. It does. I didn't know that. That's hype. So, I guess I have to live up to my name. <laughs> <laughs> nah, I'm I, I'm just chill. You I really don't believe are. my own hype. I, 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 can't I can't picture you doing a guitar solo <laughs> in the middle of the stage. <laughs> I love that you had that. It's so cool that you have had all these like dreams of being this amazing rock star, but like. You are a rock star, but in the way that is perfectly fit for you. You know, because I can imagine him like, in the middle of the stage, just like rocking. But but you you're you're the kind of the puppet master. You're the one behind yes. the scenes making it all work quietly. It's just perfect for your personality, in my opinion. I like that. Is there an artist that you're eager to work with? Uh, Young Thug. Oh, Ooh. interesting. Well, Young Thug, there it is. Young Thug. Just letting you know. <laughs> Be on alert. <laughs> you can email me. We're, yeah. we're manifesting it. So don't worry, I'll tweet you. <laughs> and then in quarantine, I feel like we've seen more of you than usual. And we like it. So have you discovered other creative outlets over these past eight months at this point other than just music? I've cooked way too much. Way. No such thing. We still need to have our turkey uh, off. Listen. <laughs> we got in a turkey fight. Yeah. like I think at Live in Miami, we got in a turkey fight. Yeah. Shit yeah. is getting real. Like, we're Not Live. Uh, 11. 11. Of course. I'm sure it was 3 a.m. Uh, Paul, Paul thinks that he can make a better turkey than we can and... I, I do agree. I do think that. <laughs> maybe I mean, sweet potato pie, but... Yeah, I mean, we saw, your sweet potato pie looked delicious. I was like, maybe we should call Paul for it, but... I mean, I think we need to put it on the books. Just just saying. I don't know about all that. I think we have lots of people we can survey. Um, um, so this is kind of like a pivot. I follow you on Twitter, have for a long time, because we're friends. But um, So you are always advocating. Like, you're always putting people on. You're always advocating. You're talking about things, even in Toronto, that other people aren't, like— 
you know, I remember I saw something, um, they had put up like those little domes for yoga and you had retweeted it and you're like, okay, but we can't find a place for homeless people to sleep. Like you're talking about things all the time. And I think I'm wondering, have you always been an advocate? And then the follow-up question to that is, does it bother you that things, um, advocacy is so trendy right now? Or are you like more happy that, okay, people are finally talking about things like Black Lives Matter and, you know, all the injustices that are going on and all that stuff? I've never really looked at things I'm doing or interested in as advocacy. I I just kind of look at it as like being good to people. So from that respect, I, I, I can see why you would say that. I just, I don't see it like that. I just see it as more like, yeah, we should protect homeless people or, or women or black people or Asian, just people are people, you know, and I've, I've kind of always had that outlook on things. And I think the more I'm blessed with things, the more I feel like I should be helping with what I can, you know? And sometimes it hits you in ways you wouldn't expect. I was in Chicago a couple of years ago on tour and there was a lady sitting in front of a store with two of her kids there and she was asking for money. And I reached into my pocket to give her some money. And I looked just before I handed it to her and it was a $100 bill. And I was like, oh. And I was like, if I can not realize I had a $100 bill in my pocket, she needs it more than me. You know, and that's, that's something that I think we can all do. Like, yeah, in the moment, it probably isn't ideal to maybe help a homeless person or give somebody change when they're begging or trying to squeegee your window but you're inside the car you know like that's that's sort of been my perspective on most things if I'm in a position to help I normally will just because that's kind of who I am and I, I don't really know if I could say I'm bothered by advocacy being trendy because if it helps, it helps. You know, uh, obviously, I do think that there's a lot of people jumping on certain bandwagons. If this is a bandwagon that helps more people, go for it. If it's not, it doesn't matter. You know, it's going to be one of those things that kind of comes and goes. You mentioned uh, Black Lives Matter. I'm kind of torn with that, and I've I've mentioned this a few times, even on my Twitter, because I feel very strange saying to somebody that my life matters. You know, it's the same way I feel very strange when certain things are considered like feminist points of views. Like, isn't that like a human point of view? You know, like it, it's weird to me that somebody wanting to get paid the same as someone else doing that job is like a feminist. Mm -hmm. Like, no, they just want their money. <laughs> you know, like that's... <laughs> That's kind of how I see it. So some of these fights, it's like, okay, I get it. You have to go to the lowest common denominator sometimes for people to understand it. But we're at a point now where I don't think we should have to reduce certain groups for the group that is in the position of power or reducing them to begin with can feel comfortable treating them better. And that's where I feel, I guess, like, strange with, like, a Black Lives Matter movement. Because I, 
I don't fully understand the title. Like, I don't understand why we're telling people that Black Lives Matter. Like, I get it, but I don't get it. You know, and, and that's where I think just as humans, we got so much work to do. And it, like, don't get, a, don't, don't get what I'm saying twisted because a lot of the work is being done. I'm just, you know, venting my own frustrations with how some of these things are being labeled. You know, it is very strange that I have to make myself feel inferior to someone else for them to be like, okay, yeah, you're right. You know, like mm-hmm. that's, that's a little bit of a weird thing. And in seeing this, I have been able to look and, and realize like, oh, that's what women have been saying for so long or, or that's what gay people have been saying for so long. Like, why do we have to fight for rights to get married? You know, and these are positions that I just overlooked for so many years because they didn't affect me. And that that's where I realized like, okay, I get it. Like if we say certain things in a certain way, there's going to be people that are going to pay attention because it didn't affect them before. And I've been one of those people. And I think we all are at certain times because you just kind of live your life. You do, you do what you know. And in some ways, a lot of people don't know different. You know, a lot of a lot of people don't really have any anything to compare it to because that's that's the way it's been. And being someone who's been fortunate to travel through almost every state, you know, being on tour, I've seen there's a lot of different ways of life that we don't see on TV. You know, and some of those ways are coming to the forefront now and people are shocked. But because I've traveled and I've seen these things. I'm not even slightly phased by it because it's like, oh, you got, oh, you didn't know that's been happening? Like, but. But they didn't, you, people didn't know it was happening. Until people, they some people didn't know it was happening. Some people didn't care it was happening. And some people thought it was right that was happening because that's just what they were grown up with. And um, for instance, I was going to a studio session just outside of Atlanta, maybe two or three years ago. And I was in the Uber. We were going probably 45 minutes out of downtown Atlanta. And the Uber stopped at a stop sign. I happened to look to my right and on the stop sign, on the post is one of those stapled signs where you like tear off a phone number at the bottom. The sign was for a KKK rally and all the little things were phone numbers so you could call in say you're going to join the rally and keep it moving. And I was like, oh yeah, like that's still happening. This is just outside of Atlanta. You know, that was my wake up call to myself thinking that the world is the way I grew up in Toronto, where it's not, you know, and that's the, the harsh reality for a lot of people. You, you only know what's in your bubble. Our bubble is a little bit bigger in Toronto because we do have a lot of different cultures and economic situations that a lot of people normally wouldn't get wherever they grow up. But then you go to somebody else's bubble and it's like, oh, shit, this is completely different than anything I could have imagined. And that's where I, I realized like, you can fault some people for some things, but you also, if you are on the other side of the fence and you grew up 
and they still have active KKK rallies, what would your view be of people that don't look like you? You know what I mean? Like, it, you know what your parents taught you. You know, the police officers now were the KKK leaders' sons and daughters. You know, like, that's, that's just how it goes. So in many ways, this is, they've been having these injustices for generations, and it just continues. But they also don't even know that it shouldn't be continuing because they've been living in their bubble. And in their bubble, it's okay to have a KKK rally and invite their friends. The idea that we have to be so basic as having to say Black Lives Matter, like you've essentially taken apart the point, but brought almost proved the point that if people are, have been living in these bubbles for so long, that we and if people still don't have equal pay, then we have to make it so basic so that people can then allow for their minds to expand to the idea that we're, we do all, all of our lives matter, black lives matter. Um, women should be paid the same way and treated the same way. Yeah, for sure. And that's why I've still supported the movement. I, right. don't, I don't like the wording of it and how I feel like it takes, it takes some of the excellence out of whatever this is representing, but it just, it is what it is. If this is the way that everybody unifies, then it's the way that everybody unifies. But at the same token, I don't think um, some of these things are supposed to be fights that only that group is fighting. Facts. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's where it's, it's kind of strange to me that we're still fighting for these things as opposed to just being like, oh, they're a human, treat them like a human. You know, they're a person, treat them like a person. I don't know if I'm expecting it to change. I just think, and I was saying this to somebody the other day, I wouldn't say I'm really expecting for less racism. I just expect people to be more aware that when they are racist, there will be a consequence. Because I don't even care if everybody is or isn't. You can have your preference. You can like green shirts. You can like white shirts. Just know if you put on that green shirt and you get punched in your face, that's <laughs> your fault. You know, and that's, that's where I think we have to get to. Because they're still surprised. Like, somebody wants to punch me because I'm wearing this green shirt? It's like, well, you know what comes with the green shirt now. You chose to put on the green shirt. Perfectly fine. You know what I mean? Like, you can get punched for wearing the green shirt. Everybody goes back to their day. They just continue doing what they're doing. You know, and that's, I think, where things will start to change. There's always going to be dirty cops. Just know if there's dirty cops, the other good cops turn around and they're like, hey, man, stop that. There you go. You know, like, that's... Imagine that. Consequences. I actually had a question... um, that when we started talking about Twitter, not about Kanye, but just about his conversation that he's brought up about owning your masters and what your thoughts are. Do you think that this is, this is the end of the record label? Um, is it a necessary function still? As I mean, they're a lot more pared down than they used to be, but they are still quite bloated. And I'm wondering if 
the record label is something that's going to continue on or it's something that needs to change. Now that musicians and producers have so much more power um, and ability to produce without that big behemoth behind them for distribution. There's so many answers to that question. <laughs> we want them all. I think the overall structure will change because of lot, a lot of record deals were originally based on physical sales, which were much easier to um, track and quantify. Uh, streaming has changed the game a lot. Some for good, some I'm not sure because it does it does make as the artist it does make our music way more accessible, but it also makes it way easier for companies to profit off of us because it is way more accessible and it's less of a number that can be tracked. So it's not like a CD that sells for $12.99 sells for $12.99. It's you pay your subscription and then Apple decides what percentage they give. Spotify decides what percentage they give. Title, Amazon Music, and it's a sliding scale. So it's different for each place. So that changes the game a lot. It does open doors, but it does close some doors. As far as record label involvement in careers... That's almost like saying our bank's going to stop giving out mortgages because there's private lenders. Yes and no. Because in some ways it will be better for certain people to go to the bank because of whatever the rate is for them. In other ways, it's better to not go to the bank and go to whoever it is that will help fund that project. And that's, that's where labels come in. Labels really are the bank. Labels are the funder. Yeah, they'll help with marketing and they'll help with videos and all those other things. But that's based on them having a budget to do that. Because if you do it for yourself, you're going to do all the same jobs as the label. It just depends on how much money you can allot to those different things. And the conversation of owning your masters is a very loaded question <laughs> because... In theory, yes, every artist normally would want to have ownership of the masters and decide where that goes. It's just how do you change somebody's contract and how do you change their involvement if you've already put something in motion, which is what a lot of the conversations are. Yes, the conversations are needed, and I do think a lot of good will come from them. It's not necessarily a conversation for Twitter because... <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason I'm saying that is because you have all of these people weighing in on legal terms that they don't necessarily know what's attached to those terms. You would never see a dentist analyze somebody's teeth and then just put the pictures of the teeth online and have people weigh in. You You're know, so good. I love it's your comparison. That's a great you analogy. Know, it's very yeah. lay person's Real explanations life. are fire. But, well, that's the thing. So it's like you might know the person needs braces, but if everybody on Twitter starts telling you how their teeth should be done, would we trust their teeth would be done fine? Do they need braces? Do they need an Invisalign? Like what? <laughs> 
you know, and that's kind of what's happening with all of these contracts and Kanye put his contract online and people are like, oh my God. But do you know that he's actually redone his contracts 10 different times? Do you know that it says that in there? <laughs> you know, he's saying he has 10 contracts with them. No, you've redone your contract that many times. So it wasn't one time you had a lapse in judgment or didn't understand the terms. You went back for more money. And, you know, so now in your position, after however many years, yeah, you can release your contracts to the public and let people weigh in. But there's so much behind that. And that's why I think it's great to have those conversations. It's dangerous in certain ways because then you have other you have other artists that don't have that leverage thinking I should be able to do that too or I should be able to readjust. Problem is, as anybody knows, if we go back to the bank scenario, if the bank gives you a mortgage for a certain amount of years and you're locked in, whether it's five years or 25, on year three, I can't go back to the bank and be like, yo, come on, guys. <laughs> This is a little bit crazy. I was across the street. My friend told me what their house is at. Let's switch it up. We need to we need to renegotiate. They'd be like, what are you talking about? You know what I mean? But that's kind of what is happening in the music industry. You have all of these people like weighing in on the terms of Meg the Stallion's contract mm-hmm. and Kanye and all these different legal battles. And then you have other artists who feel like they are being undervalued or whatever, saying like, yeah, I saw what was happening over there. You guys need to come and fix this for me. What does that mean? You know, what does fixing it mean? I'm not even saying that their deal didn't need to be fixed. I'm just saying it's a contract. So what are the ramifications of signing something that you're locked into? On the other hand, artists have been getting screwed Producers have been getting screwed. Labels are doing the screwing. (laughs) Managers are sometimes doing the screw. Like, it comes from every angle. Sometimes the lawyers are the ones screwing the artists. You know, you think, oh, well, I just need a lawyer to overlook this and be fine. Sometimes it's the lawyer that did it. And you didn't know that the lawyer was best friends with the guy you were signing with. You know, like, there's so many different aspects to it. So there's not... There's not really one answer. If I don't even want to keep speaking on Kanye, if this was coming from a position that was unbiased, great conversation. Being that there's so much else going with that position, it's there's so many things tied into that. I like, mean, um, Taylor Swift. And Scooter Brown, another another master argument. Taylor Swift's father is the one that sold it. She knew, <laughs> right. okay, you know. So. But once again, I don't know her situation. I can't speak on it. Right. Just from what I know, it's very hard to analyze an agreement between an artist and an entity based on what they put on social media. Bam. And that is and a that's good, your major takeaway. That is a good takeaway. That's a very good takeaway. That was awesome. Guys, I feel like we could talk to you 
all day long about a million different things. I'm a little sad that our conversation's coming to an end, but we're super grateful that you took the time to sit with us and come hang out and do this podcast. Paul, you're the best ever. No problem. Thank you, yeah, you so are. Much. Um, so amazing. Yeah, we're so happy to have you. You're smart and cute. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. Just a little cutie <laughs> Coz, thank you for listening to another episode of Conversations with Coco and Friends. Don't forget to rate this podcast on Apple and follow us on Spotify. Keep up with us at Coco and Co. That's C-O-W-E. On the gram. Thanks again, Paul. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.